You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. Good to see you all. We are charging on forward through Genesis today. We only have three chapters left. And out of 15, it's thinking about that, that's almost an entire year's worth of sermons just for Genesis. Um, It's been a wonderful journey. I've quite enjoyed it. Uh, It's illuminated my eyes to a great many things that I did not realize were there. Uh, And so it still continues to do that every time I go through another chapter. Uh, A couple weeks ago, we talked about looking at the big picture while still living day by day, keeping God's purposes in mind while still having to live out, live this life one day at a time. And then last week, we talked about giving people dignity through difficult situations, um, that we can choose how we respond to people during those times. And then these next three weeks is going to be a closing unit. It's essentially going to be Jacob's last words and then kind of the, the finalization of this for the family. Um, Every now and then, I have the opportunity when I'm preparing for a sermon to be able to listen to someone else's sermon on it ahead of time, and I was able to do that this week, at least the first section of it. And so I thought this guy had a really great introduction, so I decided I was going to borrow it. Um, And so he was talking about that there are uh, seven stages of every person's life, and these stages rhyme. And so the beginning stages, when we're a baby or a toddler, it's the stage of spills, No matter what you try to do, you just manage to spill everything, whether yourself or what you're holding. It's a stage of spills. And then once you you grow up a little bit, you get into school, and it's the stage of drills, is that you're going to be having things, information drilled into you in hopes that you'll be able to utilize it in some way into your um, adult life. And so after this stage of drills and this uh, time of repetition, we get into the teenage years and the young adulthood, which is the stage of Life is supposed to be fun. It's about experiences. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to take the world by storm. And then comes the next stage, all too soon, the stage of bills. (laughs) In that all of those fun things come with a price and that you are now going to have to pay for it. And it comes all too soon, the realization that things are indeed expensive. Um, suddenly your parents become really brilliant and you never knew that before. <laughs> it's the stage of bills. So as you, you're chugging along through life, here we are, we're working, we're doing what we need to do. And then all of a sudden things in your body start to betray you. And it's the stage of ills. All of a sudden you can't stand up quick anymore. You're going right back down. Um, if you twist too um, quickly, the back goes out and all of a sudden you're on the floor and it's the stage of ills. Things just don't work the way they always did before, which then, of course, is followed by the stage of pills, where you got to take all those little pills, you line them up in that little box with the days of the week on them, whether it be a vitamin or a laxative, because life just needs to flow smoothly. (laughs) It's the stage of Pills. And after you've been in that stage for a little while or a long while, eventually everyone's going to get to the stage of wills. Everybody will have a time when they will leave this earth and enter into eternity to meet Jesus. Every one of us is allotted to die once and then be presented in glory to the Father. 
And so before that day happens, and as it draws closer and closer, there's something within us that wants our last words to be heard. We have some things we want to pass on to our friends and our family, to our children and our children's children. There's important things still left to be said, and we want to make sure that before we go, we manage to say those things. And it's very often done through a will. And so when we look at these next two chapters specifically, it is very much that piece. It's talking about blessings, but in a sense, it is Jacob's will to his children and his grandchildren, what it is he's passing on and what he wants them to know. And so this chapter is actually really nice in the sense that we get a really good picture at Jacob, I feel, at his best. You get all these really nice um, interactions between him, his son, his grandsons, kind of how you would hope things would be. And next chapter is really awkward. Um, I had... uh, Taylor Miller actually sent me a little clip of a, a reenactment of what the next chapter might have looked like. Because I'm sure we've read it plenty of times. And when you read prophetic things, um, we don't always get this idea that someone is actually sitting there and talking to all these people and giving them all these individual blessings. And some of them aren't so great. And so if you're lining up expecting something from dad, okay, it's the last thing he wants to say to me. You, sir, are going to be a raw-boned donkey and you're going to be put to hard labor. Like, oh, thanks, Dad. That's the last thing you wanted to say to me? That is one of the things we're going to read next week. But we'll leave that to next week. This week is a little bit nicer. Um, There's some final things he wants to say. We're talking about blessings, and so this idea of blessings or an inheritance. There's something really important that we need to realize, though. There's a passage we'll read later on today, and it starts with, to each is given. And it's talking about manifestations of the Spirit. So a spiritual inheritance we have from the Lord, a spiritual blessing that we all have if we've called upon Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Each and every one of us has received part of our inheritance now, something that we've been blessed with by God. And each is given, not each is owed. Something vital that we must understand about inheritance is it's not your stuff. I think about that with my parents is that I sincerely hope they spend every last penny before they pass on to eternity many, many years from now. I hope they use everything they've earned to enjoy the ends of their life, to go and travel, to do fun things with their grandchildren and with us, and to eat good food and have good experiences. And I sincerely hope they spend every last penny for two reasons. One, a whole lot less for me to deal with afterwards. (laughs) Anyone that's ever dealt with someone who has passed, people collect a lot of stuff in this life. The less you have to deal with, the greater a blessing that actually is to your children. But secondly, it's not my stuff. I want them to enjoy the labors of their life. That's one of the things God's called us to. Enjoy the time you have here with those you love. I want them to enjoy it. I don't want them to sacrifice those things because mom and dad, I want you to have some sort of inheritance for me. And at the end of their life, if there is a whole lot left and they say in their last will and testament and they give it to me as their executor and they say, I want you to give 
all of this stuff away, I will do it with gratitude. Because it's not my stuff. And that the last thing I can do for my parents who have loved me their whole life is simply take care of a few things that they wanted. It's the least of me. But to hold on to it as somehow this is owed to me or it's mine or I've been waiting on this my whole life misses a greater point of the relationship that was there. It's not our stuff. So we hold on to this as we enter into Genesis 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I'll make you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So in this paragraph here, we have Jacob, and he's starting this last will to Joseph as a reminder of who they are as a people. Back in Genesis 17, he told my grandfather Abraham, this is who we are. We're going to be fruitful. We're going to multiply. We'll have this land as an everlasting possession. We'll be a blessing to all peoples. And he gave it again to my father Isaac in Genesis 26, and he gave it to me in Genesis 35, and I'm passing this along again now. Remember who we are, Joseph. Joseph's been in Egypt for 39 years. He was only in the land of Canaan for 17. He's meant so much more of his life in the world. It was good that we were here for this time. This made it so we can survive. We were able to manage within this. But we are sojourners. We are passing through. This is not our home. Keep your eyes on who we are and where we're headed and what the promises that define us. Remember who we are. And then we have this reminiscence about his, his wife, Rachel. And I've very much felt this was um, one of those situations. Anybody have any older relatives? Have they ever told you the same story twice? <laughs> Maybe like two, three, five, ten times. Yes, Dad. I remember when Ma died. I was there, Dad. Yeah, I remember. We buried her at Ephrath. Yep, I remember, Dad. But it's this longing that he has for his wife who passed too soon. They didn't have enough years. He felt there always should have been more. There should have been more sons. And what's going on here through this adoption, they are representing the sons that he felt should have been there. But they didn't have that time. 
And so he's bringing them in through this spirit of adoption that even though they are grandsons, they will now be full-fledged sons. And this is the same thing we see actually throughout all of Scripture, that God takes people who are not his people and makes them his people. This idea that who you were, that life before, that family before, everything before, no longer defines you. This is now who you are. When you come to Christ, the old has gone away. Behold, the new has come. It's owning that reality. When somebody is adopted, that who they were is no longer true. It's no longer what defines them. They are now a son or a daughter in that home as if they were born to them. No less than any other. And it's a beautiful picture that God gives us that doesn't matter where we came from, we are children of God most high. When we call upon him as savior, we need to accept who he is. He has taken us into his house and we now have a glorious inheritance as children of God. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons, whom God has given me here. He said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself to his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, May God, whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd all my long, lifelong to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And I outlined those last two verses as just a beautiful picture of what God does in each and every one of our lives, who God is to each and every one of us, the one who walks with us, the one who never leaves us through the most difficult things, through our biggest mistakes, the one who never forsakes us. And from all the challenges and all the difficulties and all the enslavement to sin we have in our life, the one who redeems us. God the Redeemer, God the one who paid the price the one who bought us back into everlasting life. This is who is with us. And so when we read this scene, it should actually cause a flashback to happen. This idea of we've seen this before. When there was an older man who, uh, whose eyes were dim and he couldn't see, and there was two boys that were receiving a blessing, and he wanted to, to pass on something to his family, it should give us a flashback to Jacob and his own father. But this scene is everything that one wasn't. 
and should have been. Because with Jacob and his father, there was deception. With Jacob and his father, there was favoritism. And with Jacob and his father and his brother, there was a divide in their family afterwards. But what we see here is a bringing them together and they're blessing them together. The boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, which I found just, it's ironic language when we look at the timeline. The boys are between the ages of 19 and 26. These are young men that he's bringing forward. And what's interesting in this, these young men have only known Egypt. They've never been to Canaan. They've never experienced that culture. Perhaps Joseph brought them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but they still would be heavily influenced by the world they've always been in. And I've wondered how this was taken by the family, how this was handled, that now you have two full-fledged sons who don't know their culture, don't know their experience, don't know their struggles, don't maybe have learned about their history, but they haven't experienced it. Scripture doesn't say anything about this, but we have to know it was there. And then we have a really prominent thing, at least within Genesis, and it happens throughout still, but it's really thematic here, is this disregarding of primogeniture. It's my $2 word. All it means is the firstborn gets all the stuff. He's going to get the double blessing. He's going to get the authority primogeniture. And this just goes out the window here. And it's gone out the window many, many times. And it's just an emphasis to us that God is not going to do what we expect. And he's not operating by our standards or what we necessarily want. I want it to be this way. And God says, that's not how it's going to be. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one's the firstborn. You can't see, you didn't know. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused saying, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. And what we're seeing here for the very first time with Jacob is an actual disregarding of favoritism. I'm not choosing him because I like him better. This is simply what God's going to do. And his blessing isn't affected by his blessing, it's not coming at his expense. He's going to become a multitude of nations. He's going to be great. His brother's just going to have more. But that doesn't rob him of anything. I was considering this, this idea of, let's just say, for instance, you all of a sudden find out tomorrow you have a great lost uncle that has passed away, and he has bestowed upon you and one of your siblings an inheritance. And they read off your inheritance, and they say, you're going to receive a billion dollars. And at first you're, wow, that's extremely generous. And they go, but your sibling is going to receive $10 billion. Does that diminish your inheritance at all? Do we look at it still as of, my great uncle gave me a billion dollars? Or will we forever resent 
well, why he could have split it. I could have got five and a half. Why, I mean, why did they get 10? Why did I only get one? It's a billion dollars still. You know how long it would take to spend a billion dollars at $100,000 a day? 27 years. This is the scope I want you to have with this blessing. You're going to become a great multitudinous nation. Your brother's nation will be bigger. It doesn't diminish what you're getting because they have something different than you. What they have received does not lessen what you have. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. That ends our chapter. And I immediately asked the question, what mountain slope are you talking about? I have never heard of this. I just read all of Genesis. And so I started digging and I thought, not only have I never heard of you getting a mountain slope, I've never heard of you being in a fight. Your son, certainly. I mean, I'm back at Shechem, that was bloody mess. But other than that, what are we talking about here? Looked at the Hebrew word for mountain slope there. You know what that Hebrew word for mountain slope is? Shechem. <laughs> How much do we lose or misunderstand simply because we don't know the original language? How it would have been communicated to us when it was first written down. To understand what's going on here, he's giving him that particular piece of land, which is actually very significant to their family and will be very significant to Israel as time goes on. This is going to become Joseph's final resting place when after they reclaim the land in Joshua 24. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem. And even beyond that, it's going to be given to the tribe of Ephraim. And it's become a, one, of the, one of six extremely important cities. Six cities are like this out of all of Israel. And they're called cities of refuge. And they're given to the priests. Now, the priests are also the Levites, which is everything the Levites get is taken at the edge of the sword. So they receive a really harsh blessing next week from their father because of what they did at Shechem, taking the edge of their sword to that entire town. The only reason they become priests is because there was an uprising and they're the ones who stood up with their sword and killed off all the people that were going nuts in the camp. And because of their zeal, because of their fervency, because of their ferocity, they became priests of God. That's who he set aside over anyone else. And then he sets aside these cities of refuge. And the city of refuge is for the manslayer. So for instance, if you're building a tower or a wall, and as you're setting a stone up there, you accidentally, it falls over the side. And you go, whoops, and you look over, and it hits somebody. And they died. Well, not everybody thinks everything's an accident, as oftentimes they are. 
Some people react quickly. So these cities were a place for someone to flee retribution from the family so that you could stand a fair trial before you were condemned. And it's now the responsibility of the Levites to protect that person, which to me was just so rich in its irony of that these people that have lived by their sword their whole life now need to protect people to ensure that they get a fair trial before going and just lopping off their head. And then finally, the most significant event that happens at Shechem we see in 1 Kings 12, where the divide between Judah and Joseph's tribe really reaches its peak. We're going to have two representatives, one from the house of Judah and one from the house of Ephraim happening here. The first one from Judah is named Rehoboam. Rehoboam went to Shechem. Rehoboam is the son of King Solomon, and King Solomon has died. Rehoboam is now going to receive the kingship. For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, who's of the tribe of Ephraim, who had fled from Solomon, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. He had fled because there was a prophecy about Jeroboam becoming king of part of Israel. And this was concerning to Solomon. So what happens at this event at Shechem? Well, Rehoboam comes up there. The people say, hey, your father put a lot of hard labor on us. He was a tough guy. He was a great man, but it's been a lot of work. We would like you to ease that up, and then we will be, we will be yours, true and true. He says, okay, go away for three days. I'm going to consult my advisors. We're going to talk about this. So he consults the older men that had served with his father, had been around a long time. They, they basically told him, do that. Solidify your kingdom. Have everybody before you, and we'll move forward from there. Do this thing. And then he went to, he said, okay, I'm going to think about that. And he went to the young men who he grew up with. And he said, what should I do? He said, you know what? This is what you're going to tell him. Tell him, my little pinky is bigger than my father's thigh. And if you thought he was hard, he disciplined you with whips. I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. And he goes, yeah. (laughs) And that's what he does. He goes back to them and says, you thought it was tough with my dad? You wait for me. And 10 tribes go, see ya. (laughs) And this is when Israel and Judah split and they become two nations, never to return back to that. It all begins here in Genesis when you have these two sons that have risen to prominence in their family. And one is going to be significant, but the other is going to be chosen. The other one is the tribe of Judah in which all nations will pay homage to. And this is fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But it's just sad what happens to this family and what seems to be this particular place of Shechem and the significance it has for Israel. So what can we learn from this chapter? What can we glean? The very first thing is that we don't choose our blessings. We don't choose our inheritance. It's given to us. But we most certainly can choose how we respond. Out of 1 Corinthians 12, it says, and there are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. 
to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, uh, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually in the most important three words, as he wills, not as we will or as we want. It's as God wills. He has decided who is going to get what. And we have to be on our guard. We have to be so careful to protect ourselves from comparison and coveting. From looking at someone else's gift and going, you know, I would really love to be like that. They just, everything they say, it just flows so smoothly and I just get all caught up on my words. I just so wish I had their gifts. Man, I wish I could get up here and sing, but I sound like bags of cats being beaten together. (laughs) I wish I had their gift, what I could do with their gift. I wish I had their opportunities. You know how much farther I would be if I had their opportunities? They don't even appreciate it. They're just so naturally athletic. Anything they do, they're amazing at. You give them a ball, it goes 500 yards. Anything they do, and they don't even care. We have to be so very careful at this point. Out of James 4, it says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I have a couple of important questions here. The first one is, when you have that notion of, oh, I wish I had that gift, why? Why do you wish you had that gift? You do have a gift. You do have value. You are wonderfully and beautifully made. Why do you wish you had that gift. Why aren't you happy with the way you are? I know many, many people have had that point in their life where they wish they could be anyone but themselves. But God has given each and every one of us something wonderful, something unique, something that only we have. He's given you all a special gifting of who you are. Every now and then, uh, God gives last-minute illustrations. And while I was worshiping this morning in first service, it just something popped in my head, and it was just, it was startling to me. So as a father of four young children, we watch a lot of cartoons. Anybody seen the movie Wreck-It Ralph? A few of you, a smattering. 
So Wreck-It Ralph, the premise of it is it's characters out of the old arcade games, the big old box ones with the joysticks and the buttons, and you paid quarters into them. He's an arcade character. He's the bad guy in the game Wreck-It Ralph. And there's another main character out of another game named Sugar Rush, and she is glitchy. And both of them are struggling with appreciating who they are. Wreck-It Ralph, just one of these days, he wants to be the guy that gets the medal. He wants to be the guy that gets the pie. He doesn't want to be the guy that's thrown off the top of the building when the, when the hero wins and he lands in the mud. He's tired of being that guy day after day after day after day. And so he goes on this whole journey of experience through that, of wanting to be anyone but himself. He doesn't appreciate who he is. And so you get to the end of the film and there's this really strong moment where he is the only person through his talents and abilities that can bring resolution to the challenge. I'm not going to spoil it for you in case you want to see it. It's a good movie. But because of who he is, he's the only one that's going to be able to do it. And if he was anybody different, everything would be destroyed. And so he has this moment where he accepts I will never be good. He's not a good guy. He's a bad guy. I will never be good, and that's not bad. I'm bad, and that's good. I would never rather be anyone but me. And I think about so many people, how much I wish they could finally get to that spot where you love who you are, who God made you to be. Amen. Because we are beautifully different. Yeah. And that was never meant to be so, so that we would compare and envy one another, but so we would learn to appreciate and love one another for those differences, knowing that there's so much more we can accomplish when we come together. Mm -hmm. Out of 1 Corinthians 12, it says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. If you have a gift that isn't shiny and flashy, doesn't, the culture doesn't say, it's all about this. You are still indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that it lacked, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. I think that particular area can be so difficult for people to finally get to the place where they're truly happy when someone else succeeds, when someone else is chosen, when someone else is honored. And we should all strive to be at that spot where we're grateful for who we are and we know that when someone else succeeds, it's for our mutual benefit. It's our mutual enrichment. We all move forward when one moves forward. 
and to not have the thought, I wish it was me. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And the resounding rhetorical question is, no, of course not. If all did these things, we wouldn't need each other. One of the biggest problems in this culture is we've made a God out of the individual. It's all about me standing on my own, doing my own thing, getting to the top, tippy top. And God is about the community. He's about us together, moving forward together, appreciating one another, loving one another, spurring each other on, and doing greater things for the kingdom of God as one body. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. They're good things. And I will show you still a more excellent way. Those good things, they're not the pinnacle. They're the individual gifts. The pinnacle is something that's given to everybody. The more excellent way everyone inherits. Everyone is able to contribute. Everyone is able to grow in. Everyone is able to show. Out of 1 Corinthians 13, it says, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. That person that you know of, they just, everything they say is gold. They have a thousand followers on Twitter and on YouTube and million people looking at their page every week. And it's just, I wish I could speak like that. If there is no love there, it's nothing. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. That person, they just, they've got it figured out. They've got an answer to every problem. They're just, their mind amazes you. If there's no love there, it's nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Each and every one of us has been able to experience the love of God if we've called upon Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, to know true love, to be able to give that love to others. When Jesus said, they will know me by their great orations, amazing ability to speak in a crowd, by the thorough knowledge they have of Scripture, by their ability to start corporations and nonprofit ministries, 
by their ability to make millions and give it to the poor. No, he said, they'll know me and they'll know you're of me by their love for one another. Each and every one of us can grow in this and each and every one of us has been blessed with this. And I encourage you, you are wonderfully and beautifully made and you have an amazing contribution to the body. And I dearly hope that you can say that you love who you are as God loves who you are.